90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, pretty good. Enjoying the, you know, thousand degree weather that we're getting. How about you? <laughs> oh, pretty good. You know, last week, of course, I was in Austin where it was a thousand degrees also. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh-huh. I know. It has been so juicy. I mean, we are, oh, I came from, you know, that 8% Colorado humidity. So it's kind of killing me being back home. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we missed you on last week's show. I know, I was real sad, but um, after I listened to it, it sounded like there were enough voices, so, you know. <laughs> there were enough voices, and the acoustics of the room were not great. Yeah, they were not. I will say that, uh, yeah, Matt's, uh, Matt's audio not being there was the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but that's okay. It sounded like you guys had fun. We did. We had uh, a lot of fun. There were lots of geo dinners and met lots of neat folks. Uh, I was real interested to hear about Jupiter Notebook textbooks. Yeah, that's an interesting project that having done some courses just with other tools, uh, I'm pretty interested in seeing what happens with those. Yeah, yeah, I was real excited about that. I felt really weird taking notes on my own podcast, just listening to it, but I did. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that's okay. Next time. Yeah, yeah. So it uh, well, next time you gotta actually come to SciPy. I I feel like I'd feel like such a poser. No. So there were over eight hundred people this year, and I think they said that over two hundred of them it was their first one. Oh my gosh! Ah, uh, what conference do you get a quarter of the people that they're brand new to it? That's impressive. Yeah. So I, you would be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm definitely showing up next time then. Cause, and yeah. signing up for some of those beginning tutorials would really immerse you in doing some Python. Man, that's the only way to learn, you know, when you have a dedicated... I've been thinking about this since being back from camp, and it's like, you know, when I was out at camp, I had one job, and it was real easy to do it really well. But then when you come home, you have 5,000 jobs, and it's real hard to do any one of them really well. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about, you know, there was a tutorial that uh, was again this year that we went in and sat in because we had tried to watch it from last year. Just uh, They post them all on YouTube for free. Mm -hmm. uh, we had tried to watch it back at the office and we never made it more than about 20 minutes in. <laughs> See? Ex yeah, exactly. But then when you're stuck there and you have to do it, that's the, that's the way to go. So maybe I will. Maybe I'll do one of those. Uh, and then when we have our show that says, you know, what was your New Year's resolution? <laughs> maybe right. I will have accomplished one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, this week, we weren't sure exactly how to follow up the awesomeness of SciPy because I didn't want to do another show on it. Um, yeah. And get too deep into the weeds. And I'm actually coming out to OU in a couple days. Exactly, yeah. So I'll, as Very. this podcast released, I'll be in the air. Uh, Very excited. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we thought, well, the only thing to do when I'm coming to Oklahoma is talk about Colorado. Uh, right, yeah. That seems like the logical thing to do. Um, <laughs> so I was real surprised because I feel like we've done so many shows that when I have an idea, I actually have to go back and search it on our website. I don't know if you have to do this too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just to make sure. And I was real shocked that we hadn't talked about 
uh, one of the chapters of my dissertation, which were these plastic dikes that are emplaced in the Pikes Peak granite all along the Front Range of Colorado. And you've actually been out there several times to help me sample those, too. Yes, this is when I was an undergrad and dragged gallons and gallons of water and chainsaw <laughs> up and down the side <laughs> of that. And had to drill into granite. We only got cores that were a quarter inch thick because we're both weenies, but there's that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't believe we hadn't talked about these. So I thought we would talk about sort of plastic dikes in general and then maybe touch on these specific ones in Colorado because they're really a weird thing. And if you're into you know, roadside geology of Colorado, you might have seen these things before because uh, most of them are just right outside of Denver along uh, Highway 285. So it's a pretty popular roadway. Um, but these things are really weird. I keep using the word enigmatic, which I will definitely overuse in this podcast, but it's perfect for these things because they're one of those geologic mysteries that have been talked about for a long time. You could say they're enigmatic, not magmatic. Oh, <laughs> uh, I really got to get that soundboard. <laughs> so I think we need to back up a little bit before we even talk about plastic dikes and say, what is a dike? Right. So, I mean, we've talked about igneous dikes, I'm guessing, on this. I didn't actually go back and search for that in our database. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so an igneous dike, you know, is a different type of magma that's emplaced in another body. You can usually tell them because they're a different color and they can be real lenticular, they can be linear, they can be very curvy. Uh, they basically just get injected into a magma. So the same thing can actually happen in sedimentary rocks too. Right, but fundamentally a dike is really just some other type of rock that is in basically a big crack in other rocks, <laughs> horizontally or vertically. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they're really easy to see in terms of igneous dikes, uh, like we were saying, because usually it's two very different chemical magmas. And so that means different colors. Um, but these sedimentary ones are a little bit harder because sedimentary rocks are ugly and they're basically all brown. So they're real hard to tell. <laughs> Right. And so in an igneous dike, you might have some magma and there's pressurization and a crack forms and this stuff squirts into the crack and cools off and bakes the rock around it. Right. Mm -hmm. But you can't heat up and flow sedimentary rocks. Right. I mean, you can, but then they become metamorphic rocks and it's a whole different show. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, the crack thing is still the same. Uh, for these clastic dikes. So I keep saying the word clastic. I guess we should say what that is, too. Uh, sedimentary rocks are two flavors, essentially. You have chemical sedimentary rocks, like limestone, stuff that precipitate out of a solution. And then clastic rocks, which are like the little sand grains that have been eroded and then smashed together to make a new rock. And so when I say clastic dikes, those are mostly what I'm talking about, is these sandstone-type dikes. Um, and much like the igneous dikes, they need this open fracture to inject themselves into. And I say inject, but there's a lot of different methods which we'll talk about as to how you can get this sandstone material inside either another sandstone or actually inside igneous rocks. That happens a lot too. They can put themselves in any type of rock and now you've got this sandstone dike instead of a different kind of magma as you might be used to. 
Right. And these things, we've been looking at them for a while. So the first mention in the literature was in the 1890s by Cross. Uh, right. Yeah. And those were those uh, sandstone dikes there right outside of Denver. And, you know, it's right outside of the big city, even back then. And they're real strange and very obvious because those are sandstone dikes that are in an igneous rock. So you can tell instantly, you know, the change in the character of the rock. And he said, hmm, these are weird and wrote a big paper about them. And then about, you know, every career length, so every 50 exactly. years, somebody else goes back and their conclusion <laughs> is, these are weird. <laughs> it is exactly true um, because there was uh, John Harms did his dissertation in the 60s, the 1960s, on these things because there are so many of them, hundreds of them along the whole length of the Front Range. And so the Front Range is that easternmost range of mountains in the Rockies through Colorado. And he had a huge treatise of these things. I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of years ago when I was working on my dissertation about these things, you know, 50 years later. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> uh, so that was really cool. Um, and a lot of the questions about these weird plastic dikes, and so all of them in general, but these in Colorado as well, um, everyone wants to know, you know, where... Did their source come from? What's their source? What unit is it? How did they get there? And when? Which is basically what you ask about any type of sedimentary rock anyway. Right. Or any rock. But if it's metamorphic uh, or igneous, you don't really have a great answer okay. most of the time. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> I hate to disappoint you. We don't have a great answer on these either. <laughs> yeah. So the first question that comes to mind and the first question that I ask you when we went out to sample these things is I said, these look really strange. Did they get injected from the bottom or the top? Because there's some grating in some of them. Uh, right. Um, so that's, yeah, that's basically the question on all clastic dikes. So I've had the fortune of working with this group of clastic dikes here in Colorado, as well as I did an undergraduate research project on a group of clastic dikes in Scotland. Uh, so it's kind of funny. My, my academic career up until my PhD kind of came full circle. Um, and these are, well, I'm not going to call them different, but that is the main question. Um, the ones in Scotland we looked at, it was real clear that the stuff came from on top. You could actually see the sandstone. It was still deposited on top of the really old igneous rock. A crack had opened up. The stuff came and poured in, and it had some grating, and it had time to passively infill right there and so you knew exactly where the source of the sediment is but we have this nasty thing called erosion that sometimes happens so the, it's not always that cut and dry and erosion tends to prefer you know the soft things like plastics exactly especially when you're in placing the stuff in these really ancient igneous rocks they're haven't gone anywhere in a billion years they're probably not going to go anywhere <laughs> so yeah that's the problem um, so those are the nice ones where you can tell, oh, look, there's the source sand. I can see it right there. I, clearly, you had some kind of crack form in this igneous rock. It flowed into it. Voila. So if you know the age of that sedimentary rock, if it's flowing in there, it can't be um, much different than the age of when that crack opened up and it got filled up and now you've got this classic dike. Right. Yeah. So... 
<laughs> that's not the case in Colorado, but we'll we'll get back to that later. Um, so, how big are these things when you were looking at them in Scotland? Well, the ones in Scotland that we looked at were probably on the range of a few centimeters across to meters across. Oh, so a, a big range, you know, something that an ant could fall into or something that your car could fall into. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, not as big as the range in Colorado, because those are millimeters across to hundreds of meters across. Yeah, these things could take your house in. <laughs> yeah, these things could take your neighborhood in. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. They're, um, and like I said, just like an igneous dike, they can be linear. You know, you've seen ones that have ridiculously sharp edges, and it's just this really straight line, like somebody drew it. And then there are ones that are anastomosing, have lots of different, like, inner and outer pieces that come together, very curvy. Yeah, they're real strange because they have all different shapes and all different sizes. Yeah, so you said that the ones out here are different. So they're not graded mostly, right? Mostly, yeah. We don't see the grading that we saw in the Scotland ones. So those were just this great... We actually had two different locations in Scotland. One where you knew where the source was, and it was this beautiful grading. And then another one where the source had been eroded, so you didn't know exactly what sandstone it came from, so you didn't know the age of them. But you could also see that they were put in place by the same mechanism. They were passively infilled. You could see the grading. You know, it was something that happened that wasn't catastrophic, but that's probably not how a lot of these things, well, I won't say a lot of these things, but that's not the only mechanism that you can form these clastic dikes because there's lots of fun catastrophic things that can create them. Right. So my favorite is, you know, clastic dikes, nature's fracking. <laughs> right. Exactly. It is, it is fracking that is visible at the surface because that's all fracking is. So if you're going to go in and pump a rock full of sand, liquidized sand, because that's what they use in frack jobs. I mean, they use sand, they also use weird stuff like walnut shells, pecan shells, and then they have all kinds of proprietary sand-like things. <laughs> and you basically pump all this stuff down a well and pressurize it so much that the rock can't take it and it cracks. And these things, these propents go in there and they open up these cracks and they sit there. And so now you've basically created porosity. That's the whole point of fracking. And that's what these sandstone dikes do naturally. Right. So you pressurize, you crack the rock, you inject stuff in. That's the exact same process. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's pretty <laughs> exactly. cool, though. Though in nature, I mean, a lot of these are injected into igneous rocks, which you wouldn't do if you're looking for natural resources. Yeah, probably not. There are a few igneous plays out in California and stuff, but those already have naturally occurring fractures and they're filled with oil instead of sandstone. So yeah, those are right. much better. <laughs> and um, what's really cool about this is the way the rock cracks tells you things about the orientation of stress around the, the borehole or whatever, right. where the crack originated from. I think this might surprise people. It surprised me when I stopped to actually think about it and learned about it is that, you know, when you go to frack a well, like you don't know what's going to happen. Like you have a good idea about what directions you think these cracks are going to form and how they're going to propagate. But when it comes down to it, 
it's all one big guess. Like, you can have an idea of the stress field and say, this is probably going to happen, but the way it actually goes, it's really up in the air, which was surprising to me. Well, so you think about, I, I, drill, a, I drill a hole in the ground, and I say, I want to know what the state of stress is at this point on the earth. How do you measure that? Because mm-hmm. you just drilled a borehole, so you've got a free surface. Right. So you can't, you know, stick a load cell down in there and say, okay, rock, close back up and push. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but so one of the primary ways it. that you do it is you actually section off part of that hole and you frack it. That's funny. I didn't even think about it, like, using it in that manner, you know. Like, we always just put massive fracks on stuff just to open up as much porosity as we can. But obviously, you know, it's going to go in that direction. So that's kind of, yeah, there you go. You know, I mean, or when you drill the hole, you can also sometimes the yes two opposite sides of the hole will break out. They'll spall yeah. off material. Yep. And by modeling the orientation of those, you can know something about the stress field. But we still have to depend on if you want to know the actual magnitude of stress, you got to go do tests on the rock in the lab and characterize the rock and then model what you saw in the borehole using your lab results, which there's questions about how those scale and it gets really messy. It does. And I mean, and this all assumes that you have the money to run an imaging log down your borehole, which is really expensive. So you can understand fractures or fracture orientations all throughout that uh, interval. So So uh, I guess this is the really long-winded way to ask him, (laughs) have you or anybody else looked at the orientation of all these dikes and tried to figure out what that says about the stress field at the time? Um, I mean, well, so that's the problem is that whole at the time problem. Uh, (laughs) The uh, John Harms, who got his PhD in the 60s on them, was a structural geologist. And so that is what he was interested in. Um, So this kind of goes to the larger question of, you know, when did the Rockies form and when did these things form in relation to them? So, you know, there are these big reverse faults along the front range. Okay. You're slamming all this basement stuff up and it's not the first time it's happened, right? The Rocky Mountains are there now, but back in the Permian, we had the ancestral Rocky Mountains and who knows before then if there were mountains before that which there very well could have been and so there's a lot of pre-existing zones of weakness right and when did these things get in place because what stress field are you talking about it is interesting though because most of these things that big front range fault trends north south roughly and most of these things do trend north south within 30 degrees or so yeah, so that definitely tells you something about the state of the horizontal stress field at the time. Right, exactly. So we'll get back to that at the time here in the end, because that's the fun answer. <laughs> I think we got <laughs> off topic when you asked if there was actual grading in these ones in Colorado. And um, that goes into the whole injection thing that we went into, is that when you're going to inject these things in this catastrophic manner, whatever the mechanism is, um, you're not going to have a lot of said structures. And that's actually what we see in these Colorado dikes is there's not a lot of sedimentary structures at all. You don't see a lot of flow structures, anything like that. You do see pieces of the host rock, which is mostly the Pikes Peak granite, gets kind of entrained in 
the actual sandstone dike really close to the walls, but that's about it. You don't see this grating. You don't see nice striations. You just see a big homogenous chunk of sandstone all throughout the dikes. And that's true of the ones that are 100 meters across and the ones that are a millimeter across. So it definitely indicates some kind of pretty violent injection if you've I got mean, pieces of the host yeah. rock getting ripped off and included. That's what you would think. And I mean, it's not, if it was a crack that was sitting there open, it wouldn't be surprising to have pieces of the host rock included, you know, but it doesn't appear. Some people say that they can see actual pieces of host rock that are lined up. So they're oriented, you know, with their long axis straight up and down. And so if you're going to inject something, that's what you would imagine would happen if you had a whole bunch of sort of oblate pieces of granite. So it's really tending towards injection. And that can come in a lot of different flavors, too. Hmm. So you you put in the notes something that I I really enjoyed of, (laughs) since we don't understand this very well, we just give it a lot of names. I've used this in, it's kind of my go-to um, slide whenever I give presentations about this work, because I think it's hysterical, because that's something that, like, one of my, you know, super ancient professors told me a long time ago, was that if you don't understand it, you just give it a new name in geology, and so the things with the most names are the things we least understand. And I mean, this is a paragraph of synonyms for clastic dike. And... You know, the the engineering side of me loves one of the last ones the most, of hydraulic injection dike. <laughs> uh, well, the poet in me loves tempestite. <laughs> that implies storm to me. Uh, yeah, man, exactly. Like chaos and all that stuff that goes along with that. Pseudo ice wedge cast. I thought that That's was terrible. <laughs> you got to love seismite, though. Uh, So I like seismite, which gets to one of the possible methods. Uh, But I did have a question for you. One of the ones you have listed is soft sediment deformation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've always thought of soft sediment deformation is I walk on the beach and my deformation eventually becomes rock. But you're pressurizing as you walk along. And so you could essentially on a really tiny scale be injecting fluidized sand into a weaker part of the sand beneath you. Okay. I I guess I can see that. seems like a stretch, but yes. (laughs) Yes. So it is a little bit of a stretch and I think, mm, yeah, I don't really like that one much because you're right. That's not usually how we use it. Um, but it is coupled right next to that comes the word fluid escape structure, um, which definitely could cause some injection and that could go either above or below which is exciting right and then we've also have things like sin sedimentary filling right and so that's one of these things and this was the um it's actually it's what harms came up with for these sandstone dikes in Colorado, and it's also what we think happened in scotland is that sort of as you have in Colorado's case, uplift, but in Scotland's case, it was an extensional environment. So you had opening of the Iapetus Ocean. And as you extended those granites in Scotland and metamorphic rocks, they caused cracks. And so on top of those, you had a whole bunch of sandstone 
that was sort of deposited in a beach-like environment. So if you're going to open up cracks underneath that, you're going to fill stuff up with that stuff as that sandstone is being deposited. That's the sin sedimentary part. So that sandstone isn't a sandstone yet. It's just fluidized sand. You open up those cracks, flows into it. Yeah. So that, that's sort of the depositional way, but the, the seismite gets to the injection because we've actually seen this happen in large earthquakes. Right. Yeah, exactly. And this would have to be a heck of an earthquake to create a hundred meter across seismite. Well, you also have to remember that we were pushing mountains up out of flat ground. It, yeah, that's that's exactly true. So that is still that's still on the table. Um, so Harms thought that as you lifted up this granite, it would sort of relax, which happens. And so you've lifted up this granite, and it kind of relaxes. As it does that, it cracks open, and you have this thin sedimentary deposition. But because of the lack of those structures, it's probably more injection type, but they're talking about maybe these huge earthquakes would cause this because you can get this thing, which is super awesome, called liquefaction. Yeah, and so this happened during the 1906 San Francisco earthquake mm-hmm. uh, where you have a bed of sand that's got a lot of water in it. You shake it. It becomes a semi-viscous fluid and ruptures the ground and squirts out in these sand geysers. <laughs> I tell you what, I rarely actually get stuck on YouTube for hours on end like people talk about. I just, I don't know. It's just, it's not my go-to for anything except for liquefaction videos. <laughs> I, like, I could watch them forever. <laughs> like, I'll pull them up in class and it, it's done. Like, we're done. We're going to watch 15 YouTube videos on liquefaction because it's the most unbelievable thing. <laughs> well, and so my favorite part about this is there have been other earthquakes in the Bay Area that have caused liquefaction, mm-hmm. and they've had these eruptive geysers. Some of the eruptive geysers have had bricks and building debris from the 1906 eruption that was subsequently <gasps> buried in them. Oh, my gosh. Which is super cool. That's amazing. <laughs> that goes to the whole, like, what I keep saying, the word zones of pre-existing weakness. Man, there you go, huh? That is amazing. So, you know, somebody's going to be looking at a sandstone dike way, way, way in the future and say, how did this brick get here? Okay, so there's actually, uh, I use this in my native science class too, because the mound building cultures that were all along the Mississippi River um, and the Missouri River, right? So that's very close to the New Madrid Fault Zone. So some of these mounds were not burial mounds of people, but they had artifacts in them. And so when you had seismic activity along the New Madrid Fault, it would liquefy these mounds. And so as you can imagine, just like geology, the mounds were built up. And so the oldest artifacts were at the bottom and the youngest were at the top. And it would inject them in a different order. And so that's how they could tell the cyclicity on the New Madrid fault zone was by sort of dating these artifacts and how far they move in these liquefaction events. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we've got evidence for injection and we have evidence for deposition in the fact that we have this grading and that we know that if you open a crack and start raining down sand, it's going to fill right. because of gravity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you used a big word in, <laughs> in the notes saying that diagenesis may play a role. 
<laughs> in the formation of something. So what, what do you mean there? Um, well, uh, so diagenesis is this lovely catch-all that you can use to explain away anything in a rock that you don't understand. It's on <laughs> record now. I, it, it frustrated me so much when I was taking some of the basic geology classes that diagenesis could apply to any process that made a rock strange. I mean, point, point of fact, there's a class called diagenesis at OU. Um, and so I took it a long time ago when there was a professor there that's not there anymore. And we talked about this certain set of things. And then this new professor comes in and he's teaching it. And it is an entirely different set of things. Same exact class. <laughs> totally different things <laughs> that I've talked about. And they're all diagenesis. So, so is, a, is a reasonable definition of diagenesis being modification of the rock after it's emplaced in such a way that it does not fundamentally change the type of rock? Yes, yeah, that's it's everything that happens to the rock after it's a rock. So is metamorphism diagenesis then? I mean, you can't take it too far. <laughs> yeah, because then you're changing the rock. Exactly, as long as you're not fundamentally changing it. So all the way up until, you know, the degree before you start to get atomic rearrangement, yes, it's still diagenesis. So heating up a rock with a lot of clay and then the clay is changing to different kinds of clays. Right. Exactly. Is mm -hmm. not diagenesis. Oh no, that's diagenesis. Well, it's a diagenetic process. Yeah. See now, but we're changing the <laughs> atomic arrangement. This is where you geologists drive me nuts. So, <laughs> but process geology is very different than just geology. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the semantics. I love it. But that's really true. Process geology is a totally different thing. So smectite turning to illite is a diagenetic process. But Right. Yeah, but you're right. I you heat up my sandstone rock. a lot and it becomes a metamorphic rock. It's not diagenesis. It is until that very last moment. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. <laughs> <laughs> but evidence of that metamorphic diagenetic process are probably still seen in other parts of the sandstone that didn't get metamorphosed. Fair. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I imagine um, the diagenetic processes to be. And so when we talk about these sandstone, well, heck, the whole reason that I got publications out of both of these things is that because there were diagenetic processes that were going on within these dikes, allowed me to use PMAG to find out when they got there. Yeah, so how were they altered? <laughs> well, so these dikes, the ones that I looked at were in, like you said, igneous rocks, or they were in metamorphic rocks in Scotland too. And so if you're going to bury this stuff... Okay, because that happens a lot. Stuff gets exhumed, it's at the surface for a while, you get a whole lot more rock underneath it, it gets buried again. And there's still water flowing through them all the time. But if you have a sandstone dike versus a granite, where's your water going to go, <laughs> right? It's right. going to go through this lovely, you know, porous and permeable sandstone dike system. And so that's it. And as uh, basinal waters would flow through these, they would deposit little pieces of iron. As that iron grew... It would acquire the Earth's magnetic field. Hopefully it stops growing because once it gets too big, it won't keep the magnetic field. But 
that's another show. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes you've got this tiny, tiny little iron that locks the magnetic field in. And so you know, if you can date the formation of that iron, you know that that sandstone dike had to be there before that, right? So hopefully you can do this with enough accuracy that you can nail down a close enough date to formation of these things. And did you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I did. It was real fun. Um, So the ones in Scotland, I said we had two groups of dikes. So one of them, we knew the age because the sedimentary rock, you could see it on top of it. You could see it flowing down in here. And so we said, okay, well, we'll use this as a proof of concept because we know the age of that sedimentary rock through other methods. And so we can date that dike versus the age of the sedimentary rock. Worked out. Great. So then we go to this place where there's no sedimentary rock on top. There's just dikes in, in um, basement rock. And we could do the same thing. So it was great. Worked out really well. It was very cut and dry. Fabulous. They both correlated to the same time. So there were extensional tectonics happening there that was creating all these cracks in the basement rocks. All the sandstone was infilling it. One of them got eroded away. One of them didn't. Worked fabulously. A PMAG success story. (laughs) Yes. There's so so few compared to how many studies take place. (laughs) Um, But in in Colorado, I mean, it worked in Colorado too. It was a bit messier. Um, But what was really neat is that it looks like some of these dikes record numerous fluid flow events. And they kind of line up to the big erogenies the ancestral rocky yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) so i don't really have it's kind of like different dikes have different magnetizations there's only a very few of them that have all of the magnetizations but in terms of how magnetic minerals grow in rocks this isn't too surprising so some of them line up with ancestral rocky mountain age uh some of them line up with the laramide Um, so the actual Rocky Mountains now, uh, there's some modern stuff and then there's this really, really ancient component. And that's the one that's really exciting for me. The ancestral, ancestral. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So Harms came to the conclusion that because nowhere in the Rockies, do you have a sandstone sitting on top of these dikes? So you don't know what sandstone this is. And there's a whole lot of sandstones, right? So this, the Pikes Peak granite set on the surface for 500 million years before we recorded another rock. So there's Cambrian Age sandstone on top of it, which is 500 million years old. And the actual Pikes Peak granite is 1.1 billion years old. So that's a lot of time in there, right? So there was some sandstone and it went away. That's that's what the prevailing thoughts are. Uh, Christine Sidaway is a geologist at uh, Colorado College there in Colorado Springs, and she thinks that this is, and I, I believe so too, that this is sandstone that's in these dikes is nothing that's left, which makes sense. 500 million years is a long time. You can erode a lot of stuff in that time. Um, and we say this because it doesn't really look like any other sandstone that we have preserved there in Colorado. So that makes total sense. But the question is, and Harm said, no, this stuff, you know, it probably occurred and got emplaced, you know, a long time ago, but not that long ago. And so the prevailing thought was like, oh, okay, well, this stuff is definitely not um, really old. 
but it has to be because there's a magnetization that looks like it's probably around 700, 6, 700 billion years or million years old. So, okay, here's a question then. Yes. You have your granite. You put a bunch of sandstone on top of it. Mm-hmm. How do you get injection? So I also used the word catastrophic earlier. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so back in the Proterozoic, we had a whole lot of ice ages. Glacial loading is one way that you could do this which I think is a really interesting idea. I feel like there should be some other telltale signs of this, but I don't know. Maybe well, they've been I mean, erased. So if you had granite, sandstone, and then kilometers of ice, that pressurizes. We know the base of ice can be highly pressurized. It can yep. float the ice. Right. So then you get injection, and then the ice goes away, and then the sandstone gets eroded away, possibly mm-hmm. through the ice going away, right. and then you're left with what we've got. Is that the idea? Yes. Yep. I don't know, and I was going to ask you about this since, you know, you studied somewhere where there are a lot of people that look at glaciers. Um, could you get those huge ones, though? Could you inject something 100 meters across? How much ice would you have to have to do that? I mean, we, we could math this. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> that's exciting. If you, had, if you had crazy stress fields, it could potentially not take that much pressure to open up a crack. Okay. Especially mm-hmm. if you had a pre-existing crack that was closed and the ice reoriented the stress field so that it opened there and the go. sandstone went in. Yep. Okay, great. So you just have to have the glaciers going across it perpendicularly or something, right? Uh, it depends on what the, the regional stresses are and slopes and things, but th- Which... this could be mathed. Uh, I, I, would, I would hesitate to say it's impossible for sure. Okay. Because, I mean, you can have... An entire ice stream in Antarctica that during the summer literally pressurizes, lifts the ice off the till, pressurizes the (laughs) till, and the whole thing flows hundreds of meters a year. Well, there you go. Um, And so during this time, I mean, there's not a lot known about the climate, but this is, we're talking snowball earth time, so there could have potentially been a heck of a lot of ice. (laughs) And you would have been high. I don't know that we know how high, do we? Uh, no, we don't back then because we've we've since had the ancestral Rockies and then complete erosion of them, and so unfortunately that's erased a lot of what we would know about any pre-existing orogenies, which were highly likely because if you think about the geologic time scale, you know the oh let's say just from the Cambrian, so the Phanerozoic from the Cambrian to the present, that's a long time. That's nearly all of life on earth right (laughs) i mean most rocks that we have that whole time period is that space in between when the pikes peak granite was put here and the next rock got recorded on top of it (laughs) yeah (laughs) sometimes geology is frustrating exactly so it's like you you just kind of gloss over it and you're like okay yeah 500 million years of space in this unconformity that's the entire Phanerozoic. You know, we know of at least the ancestral Rocky Mountains and the current Rocky Mountains in that time period. So who's to say there weren't two or three or four more orogenies in that same zone of existing weakness before that? 
that have been just totally obliterated. Yeah, it'd be interesting to be able to see <laughs> what was going yeah. on. But yeah. unfortunately, pretty much all the clues are gone. Uh, right, exactly. Um, I really like the glacial loading. I think it's interesting. I'd like to math that out. We can talk about that. Um, earthquakes, obviously, that's a big one. And then some people have even said impact craters, which I would hesitate to go with this one, despite my love of impact craters. <laughs> We looked pretty hard for evidence of impact when we were out here. Yeah, we sure did. And I mean, we've been shown some stuff that might be, but I think if you were to have an impact crater that created a sandstone dike that was 100 meters across, there'd be a lot more evidence for that impact geophysically. Yeah, and I mean, we found something that was sort of shatter cone looking, but not really... No, it looked more structural when it came down to it. But, I mean, this goes through the whole, you've erased 500, if these things really are 600 million years old, you know, you've erased so much history in between that. So who knows? Who knows what's happened? Um, I think that's what makes them exciting, though. And, you know, we've tried to do some geophysics because figuring out the shape of these could help shed light on the mechanism of emplacement. I think, but that turns out to be way harder than it sounds. <laughs> yeah, so we collected gravity and maybe magnetics, and I don't think we did any GPR. No, I don't think we did, because the granite's really broken up, and so we figured there'd be too much refracting, and it just would give a crappy signal. Well, and we have a high-frequency GPR hat at the time. Uh, yeah, and it's not going to so go down far Penetration so. would have been crappy. Yeah, uh, exactly. So yep. did you get anything useful out of the gravity or magnetics? No. Mm-mm. Well, remember, we did magnetics right next to that big old uh, <laughs> big old tin horn that was in the, in the road, so that didn't help us at all. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and the gravity, you know, it's a non-unique solution, man. It was, it was real hard to be able to say anything definitive with it. Yeah, so, that's yeah, unfortunate. Exactly. And, and like I said, the... The Pikes Peak Grant's a billion years old, so it's fractured from... It's had a hard life, man. (laughs) And (laughs) so doing anything that requires shooting a ray into it doesn't have the best, you know, travel. So there's that. Well, I think you need to come out here. We'll again do some some grav mag. Uh, I think we could... Because I remember when we did it, we only did, you know, dozens of points of each. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most, so, mostly because everyone that was waiting on us was asleep, but we were having fun, so it was fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we had a blast. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, they're real interesting. Well, now I'm getting all excited about them again, so hmm, this is good. This was a good topic. For so <laughs> is there anything else that we should talk about before we uh, we move on? I mean, I think we've hit all the uh, the high points. So sometimes you can figure out where these things are, sometimes or where these things came from. Sometimes you can't. They're real weird. They're actually not in a lot of places, um, especially these classic dikes that are in uh, igneous rocks or metamorphic basement rocks. You get classic dikes in actual sandstones quite a bit. They're just for reasons we talked about when we were talking about diagenesis. They're real big for oil exploration. So you see a lot of these dikes in the Gulf of Mexico uh, where you get overpressured sections of sandstones that inject themselves up through shales and stuff like that. 
Um, it's called Neptunian Dykes, which is exciting because that's a fun word to say. <laughs> and it basically just means these submarine dykes. And those are usually ones that are plastics in actual plastic rock. But these ones, plastic rocks and basement rocks, are more unique. And I've only seen a few things. Scotland, Sweden, these a few ones here in the U.S. So if anyone knows of any, I will come drill them. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, I think you need to uh, come back out here. We'll do some more geophysics. Yeah, uh, sounds, we'll have sounds some, like a plan. Some beverages with listeners in the area. Yeah, sounds good. Um, do other people do this kind of stuff? You know, like I, I came back from camp and I immediately went back to work and my husband said, aren't you going to take time off? I'm like, well, no, this is what I want to do in my spare time. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll come out there for vacation and we'll run some geophysical surveys. <laughs> that sounds excellent. I've got some PTO <laughs> saved up. Oh, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, after we're done with all that hard work, we should relax with a nice chocolate milk before we hit the bar, right? <laughs> yeah, so that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. <laughs> Fun Paper Friday! Yay! <laughs> so, uh, listener Daryl sent this in, and as alluded to, chocolate milk for recovery from exercise, a systematic review and meta-analysis of controlled clinical trials by Amiri et al., so this was in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition recently, uh, okay. last year. Mm-hmm. Or, well, no, it was accepted this year. It was submitted last year. Yeah, there you it was go. accepted this year. Um, this, I, I, I was slightly surprised that this was published, to be perfectly honest. Okay, yeah. So as I told you before the show, <laughs> um, meta-analysis, is that like meta-publishing? Because this paper doesn't do much. <laughs> so like, I get the idea of it. And these review articles are very successful in some things, but this one stunk. Yeah, I, I was... So they want to evaluate if chocolate milk is a good thing for you to drink after or between sets in an exercise to help uh, improve your total time to exhaustion, help with water and electrolytes. uh, Mm -hmm. Heart rate, um, creatine, kinase. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And uh, 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 lactic acid buildup. Oh, yeah. Reduce Mm -hmm. that burning. Um, The only thing I think about when I first saw this was that scene in Anchorman where Ron (laughs) Burgundy is, you know, oh, it's hot. Milk was a bad choice. Uh, Gross. Uh, so, I mean, I love chocolate milk. It's not exactly what I would think about during a workout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, if you True. can believe it, there are 1,574 research items on chocolate milk in the literature. I, I mean, I can believe it, though, because I... Uh, I am not one of these fitness freaks, but I do read a lot about them because I aspire to be, but in, in intellect only, like I'm not actually going to do this stuff, but (laughs) so, you know, chocolate milk is pretty cheap and easy to make. And I think that's the point is that, you know, tons and tons of money goes into these exercise drinks 
I mean, Lord knows how much actually goes into creating them. And so do you need to do that? Or do you just need to squirt some Hershey's and some Moo Juice and you get the same benefits? And I think that's sort of the impetus for using chocolate milk as a post-workout recovery thing. Right. And so they took these 1500 articles, uh, did some weeding out. Uh, a lot of them didn't have anything to do with workouts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they got down to 23 publications that they read. And then after that, they pulled out 12 that had clinical trials that they thought they could systematically review and compare. Which a review study of 12 studies doesn't really seem to have a point, right? I was shocked. I thought this would be new data compared to these 12 studies. Right. That's what I thought, too, when I read that. But it's nothing at all. <laughs> and of those 12 studies, they also went ahead and this just seems like throwing every statistical method at a data set you could possibly do. And so they came up with, you know, good, fair, and poor studies, right, based on these different things that you listed off before about what chocolate milk can do. Yeah, and they had a risk index based on all kinds of stuff to see if the study would be biased based on who had done it and so on. Right, yeah. And so they only had two good studies of the nine, and then one low study, and the rest were fair, and yet they still kept going. <laughs> well, and what shocked me is, so to me the answer that I would want is, is chocolate milk more effective than an exercise drink? Mm -hmm. Or as effective? Mm -hmm. because these studies were all done looking at slightly different things and with different methods, the only conclusions that could be drawn is that in a couple of areas, such as total time to exhaustion, it could be statistically better than a placebo. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it. Uh, when I read this, too, and I don't know if you caught... Well, I'm sure you caught this. Um, but what was really... When they broke down these things, creatine, kinase, heart rate, time to total exhaustion, basically they would say, well, nothing's significant. But if you throw out this study, it becomes significant. That's like, right. what's the point, man? <laughs> if you've got nine, but you throw one out, and then all, all of a sudden your statistics are way skewed, I guess it's a good example of how you can abuse statistics. That's what I got from this paper. Right. And I, I hate to be so hard on a paper, that, especially one that's not in our field. Right. Exactly. And like, it's really well, well written. Like there's nothing wrong with that, but I just don't, I don't know. Hmm. I, I thought, so, I mean, I don't, I think publishing null results is a fine thing. Yes, I agree. I just thought that the effort of we're going to take these studies, we're going to try to get a more conclusive result from them, when it ended in they're not similar enough to really do a lot. Yeah. Uh, now, I did really like table two. <laughs> I'm on it right now. <laughs> yeah, I did too. It was nice. So this is more of an infographic style thing, which more papers should have. Mm -hmm, yeah, because it's real easy to read. Yeah, so when, I don't know about you, but when I see a big table in a paper, I scroll right past it unless I need to go back and pull out some data because it's oh, exactly what I'm doing. 
Uh, right. Yes, exactly. Which was basically every other table in this paper. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But this one, they've got all the studies listed. And mm-hmm. then the quality and risk of bias assessment based on things like random sequence generation in the paper uh, uh-huh. or blinding of the participants or mm-hmm. uh, incomplete outcome of data and so on. Right. Yeah. There's some formatting I, weirdness in this table. The typesetting was <laughs> not so great. Uh, that is true, but it's it's wonderful. Like I am, I know so many people are like, I can just read the, uh, I just want to read the figures and the captions, and that's all they get out of a paper. I'm not like that. I don't know. I'm not visual like that. I'm, I have to read the words. But this one was great. I spent a lot of time with table two. Yeah. So, you know, they've got question marks or uh, a negative and like a stop sign or a positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, you can instantly see, oh, these are the good papers because it hit that one and that one and that one and that one. Yeah. I thought it was strange that none of the studies had participant blinding. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So did you read in there why? It was something to do with like the fact that chocolate milk is chocolate milk or something like that, they said. <laughs> it was like something about the flavor of chocolate milk made them not do that (laughs) right so how do you give somebody a placebo (laughs) chocolate milk i thought that too and they just said it was like a placebo it was like a sugary water right which i also don't understand how you can't account for because it seems like that introduction of sugar would affect all these things they're trying to measure but well i'm curious how much of this is like total time so heart rate and stuff you can measure but total yeah. time to exhaustion, like I think that also has some pretty big mental impacts. Oh, yeah. And it's got to be so singular to a person, right? Yeah. I like mean... if I just had a big glass of chocolate milk, I'm going to be in a pretty good mood. <laughs> Which, I mean, was the conclusion. <laughs> right. Was that, you know, protein and chocolate milk was great. And that's probably why people use it. And sure, it looks like it. Some studies say that's cool. So is it better than an exercise drink? We don't know. Is it better than sugar water? Yeah. Yeah. And it probably, you know, way cheaper than an exercise drink. So there you go. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So I guess that's that's the mind space I'm in. Let's save some money and not write meta-analysis papers of nine, nine studies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love review papers. Don't get me wrong. Because sometimes they're, it's really important to have that because there are so Well, it's just like we say in the intro to the show, right? You know, there are so much information. It can be really overwhelming. So for someone to sit down and put put together, you know, here are all the studies that have been done about this up until now. Those papers are invaluable. Right. But this one just, it was a little too meta, I thought. (laughs) It's also pretty short for a review paper. And that, well, there's only nine studies, man. Yeah, fair. Uh, 12, isn't there? Yeah, it's 12. Oh, 12 sorry, studies. 12. Sorry, keep saying nine. I, I guess I'm throwing out the low one. <laughs> yeah, I, I was surprised that that was not just and the two And the two good ones, yeah. See, I'm throwing out both ends and just <laughs> talking about the fair ones. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I think that so few studies means that there is definitely room for a listener expansion. Oh, I agree. If you could throw in some rubber bands and a chicken, we're all over this. <laughs> right. So <laughs> if you are one of those people that goes out and does your does your runs or does your time at the gym, 
Try chocolate milk and let us know what you think. <laughs> Unless it turns out badly, in which case we don't want to know. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, something about we're not that kind of doctors. Consult your <laughs> yeah, real doctor yeah. before. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, Shannon, if they have those results, other fun papers, <laughs> or their own thoughts on sandstone dikes that you and I should come do a lot of geophysics on, how can they get a hold of us? <laughs> Sounds good. Send us those coordinates. Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, as always, we're hanging out in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground on the Don't Panic channel. Uh, we're on Twitter at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, head on over there, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 